impressive. <laughs> Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. So as we begin a series for the summer in the Psalms, I was uh, reminded of an NPR interview I listened to a couple of weeks ago by an author whose name is, um, what's her name? Elena Manis, who's written a book called The Power of Music. The Power of Music. And in this book, she says that science at this point all but confirms that humans are hardwired to respond to music in particularly powerful ways. And throughout the book, she explores how music affects different groups of people and even how music can begin to play a greater role in things like healthcare. Manis says that scientists have found that, uh, that music stimulates more parts of the brain than any other human function. And so she argues that music has the potential to help people with neurological deficits, for example, uh, like people who've had a stroke and have lost verbal function, perhaps those verbal functions can be stimulated by that patient listening to music over a period of time. And one technique that she speaks about, known as melodic intonation therapy, uses music to coax portions of the brain into taking over those other portions of the brain that have been damaged. And in some cases, it can help patients regain their ability to speak, among other things. I was fascinated by that interview and fascinated by the ideas behind that book because it speaks to something that I think we would, most of us anyway, find to be true. And that is that music contains in itself a particular potency, a particular power. I mean, have you ever thought about it? These are psalms, which is basically another word for songs. David, uh, the author of about half of the psalms, didn't write these psalms so that we would just sort of recite them to one another, but so that the church of Christ throughout the ages would sing them because in the singing of these truths, there's a particular power. The psalms make up the, uh, the emotional spinal cord of the Bible, if you want to think about it that way. They display for us a life fully lived quorum Deo, a life lived before the face of God. The psalms give the full range of human feeling and life circumstances. Any position you might find yourself in in your life is to some degree or another reflected in the Psalms. And the Psalms teach us to redirect those circumstances and those human emotions, positive or negative, in a Godward direction. And so given that, the Psalms are worthy of our deep reflection and meditation. And so the plan this summer is to look at various psalms. Will and I have selected these psalms to give you a, a taste of the wide theological and emotional range of this great book. And so today we're going to begin by looking at the psalm that Lauren just read for us, Psalm 8. And I hope you noticed that the first verse and the last verse of Psalm 8 are the exact same. There's a repeated refrain there, a chorus, you might think. 
It's, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That theme bookends. It bookends this song. And it shows us that this is a psalm about the majesty, the majesty of the name of God. And the psalm beautifully puts forth for us the way in which God's majesty is seen in the world and the way in which God's majesty is seen in our lives. Psalm 8, then, is, it's really a great example of a hymn or a spiritual song. The Old Testament commentator Derek Kidner puts it like this. Listen to what he writes. This psalm is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be, celebrating as it does the glory and grace of God, rehearsing who he is and what he has done, and relating us and our world to him, all with a masterly economy of words and in a spirit of mingled joy and awe. So the theme for our time this morning, then, is the majesty of God. The majesty of God. And as you read through this psalm and as we study it together for a few minutes this morning, you'll see three contexts that David gives us in which we see the majesty of God. And we can outline it like this. The majesty of God is seen in the context of an oppressive world. Secondly, in the context of a vast world. And then lastly... The majesty of God is seen in the context of a purposeful world. The majesty of God in the context of an oppressive world, a vast world, and a purposeful world. Let's look at those three points together as we look at Psalm 8. First, David sings about the majesty of God in the context of an oppressive world. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. And then in verse 2, probably the strangest verse in the psalm, David speaks about his foes. And God's foes, the enemy and the avenger, he says. And he writes that God's majesty is established out of the mouths of babes and infants. Now that's a phrase, out of the mouths of babes and infants, that's used a handful of times in the Old Testament. And in every instance you read that phrase in the Bible, it's used in the context of oppression. That is in the context of the weak being harmed by and oppressed by the strong. It's used to speak of the aggression against God's people by the wicked of the world. And so David here is saying that it's precisely in this context of oppression that God cares for his people and therefore makes his majesty known. It's somewhat of a paradox. It's somewhat of a paradox. God silences the mouth of the enemy, David writes, through the mouths of infants, through the weakest of the weak. God uses the weak to shame and silence the evil of those who are strong in this world. That's a theme you see throughout the Bible. Think about the famous story of the Old Testament, the Exodus. Throughout the history of Israel, you realize that Israel is really not much more than a baby in terms of the nations of the world. I mean, who was Israel? Who were they to stand up to the might of Pharaoh's army? But God protected and God rescued them in their weakness. You see it again later in Israel's history. In the book of Judges, you read the great story of Gideon. Gideon is a nowhere man who's a part of a nowhere family and the least important tribe in Israel. And in this time, Israel's been oppressed by the Midianites, the nation of Midian, for some decades. And God calls Gideon to deliver Israel. 
And then he says, Gideon, raise up an army. And so Gideon calls as many men as he can get to himself. And it's a pretty substantial army. But God says to Gideon, you know what? This is way too many people. I need you to send these people home. And so the armed force is reduced a couple of times down to where it's just 300 men facing an army of tens of thousands of Midianites. And then the author of Judges tells us God does the fighting for them. God does the fighting for them. The whole story of the Bible shows us that God uses the weak. God uses the weak to shame the strong. He shows his majesty in the context of oppression. You know, that's true on a spiritual level as well. It's true that God uses weakness to shame, strengthen this world. When you think about how God saves people in our day now, he saves people through the preaching, through the telling, the proclamation of this foolish message of the gospel. That's what the apostle Paul says about the gospel in his letter to first, the Corinthians, his first letter. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says that his gospel is foolishness to the wise and to the powerful of the world, but it's just there that God makes his majesty known. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that he came to the Corinthians in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, but it was that that was used by God so that the Corinthians' faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The point is that God shows his majesty in using the weak, to overpower the strong. I love how John Calvin puts it in his commentary on Psalm 8. He writes this, Babies are invincible champions of God, who, when it comes to the conflict, can easily scatter and discomfit the whole host of the wicked despisers of God. What is this psalm asking of you? How is this psalm reading you this morning as you read it? Well, here's a question that the Spirit perhaps is asking you to ask yourself. Do you have a sense of your own weakness? Do you have a sense of your own weakness? Do you feel overpowered and overwhelmed by oppressive forces in our world and maybe even in your own life? There's all kinds of examples of that as you think about your life. Maybe it's in raising your children that you have a sense of your weakness. And let me just say, side note, if you don't have a sense of weakness in raising your children, something's wrong. Something's wrong, okay? In raising your children, you're going to feel stymied and confused and at a loss. Maybe you sense your weakness and that you don't know what God has in store for your future. I know some of you right now are in the search for new jobs. You're in a season of transition and you can't fathom what God is up to in your life. Maybe you've tried putting pieces of a broken relationship back together again, but it seems impossible. It seems beyond you. Maybe you're even being oppressed by evil powers in the world, by the prince of the power of the air, as Paul calls the evil one. If that's where you are, listen, if that's where you are, you are actually walking the path that the people of God have been on for thousands and thousands of years. If that's where you are, this psalm teaches that you are in just the place where the majestic goodness of God can meet you. You're in just the place where you can have faith that God is with you. So this psalm reminds us that we can take comfort in the truth that God's going to watch over us. You know, God does not need you to be strong. God needs you to be weak. God does not need you to be strong. God needs you to be weak because it's in your weakness that you see his majestic 
strength. Maybe that's one of the many meanings of Jesus' words, that whoever's not like a little child, whoever's not like a little child cannot enter into my kingdom. You know, kids typically know they are weak, and if they forget it, then they'll learn that lesson again sooner or later. It's just there that the majesty of God is revealed. You see, he establishes his strength against his enemies through our being as weak as little babies. That's the first context where the majesty of God is seen. Secondly, the majesty of God is seen in the context of a vast world. Look at what David says in verse 3 and verse 4. When you gaze at the heavens, when you gaze at the vastness of the universe, God's glory and God's majesty are made known. You know, there's, there's very few things like space, like outer space, to give you a picture of the immense power of God. You know, presumably, David only knew a fraction of what we know now about the actual size of the universe. Maybe David knew more than we do. Who knows? But based on what we know now, we know that our galaxy, the Milky Way, which is incredibly massive, it would take about 100,000 light years to cross the Milky Way from one end to the other. But our galaxy is about the size of a poppy seed when related to the size, or excuse me, our sun is the size of a poppy seed when related to the size of the Milky Way galaxy. The galaxy would be like Cowboy Stadium in Dallas. Our sun's like a poppy seed and the earth is like a tiny speck of dust. That's how big the Milky Way galaxy is. But our galaxy is just a tiny fraction of the size of the whole universe. Astrophysicists now say that about 500 billion Milky Way galaxies would make up the size of the known universe. 500 billion. Our galaxy is a tiny blip on the radar of the known universe. But this psalm says, listen, that to create our galaxy, to create our universe is nothing for God. It's easy It's easy for God to sustain the stars and the sun and the moon and the quasars and the black holes and the asteroids of the solar system. David says that it's all the work of his fingers. For God to create the universe is like, it's like Mozart playing chopsticks on a piano. It's nothing. It's easy. He does it by the word of his power, as our confession says. Unquestionably, as David writes elsewhere, then the heavens declare the glory of God. And here's the amazing thing. As amazing as that is, as vast as our universe is, what David is really saying here is that the God who created and oversees something that incomprehensibly humongous is mindful of and cares for you, is mindful of and cares for us. That's what really stuns David and moves him to worship. Listen, here's the truth about what the real God is like. The real God is powerful enough to speak into existence a universe that is billions of light years across. And at the same time, the real God is loving enough to care about every single detail of your individual lives more than you care about them yourself. 
The real God is powerful enough to sustain a universe that we can't even begin to comprehend the size of, but he's also loving enough to care about the minuscule details that you forget about going through your day. These verses infuse our lives with significance and meaning. They tell us that we matter. We matter to God. God thinks of us. God watches us. God cares about us. The truth, though, friends, is that the narrative of our world today does not want us to believe that. My daughter Ainsley and I were uh, doing some science homework that she had a couple of months ago, and we went into a sort of a Google deep dive on space and the universe, etc. And we came across a really interesting video that contained this quote from the uh, old astrophysicist Carl Sagan, who did all these videos in the 80s. You might remember him if you were growing up then. He was a physicist and an atheist. And Carl Sagan says in this video this. Listen to what he writes. The earth is but a dot. The earth is but a dot. And that is our home. That is us. On it is everyone you've ever heard of. Every human who has ever lived. On it is the aggregate of all of our joys and sufferings, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and every forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilizations, every king and every peasant, every young couple in love, every hopeful child, every mother and every father, every inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Lived on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. And Sagan's point is that we really don't matter at all. That we really don't matter at all. He's saying that we're so incredibly insignificant in the grand scheme of things, that to attempt to infer meaning or value from our lives is just an exercise in futility. But do you see how that goes against the grain of the real story of the world? Do you see how that goes against the grain of the reality of who this psalm says that God is? You should be able to see it because no one, listen, no one can really live out that worldview. No one really consistently lives as if they believe what Sagan says here, Sagan included. No one really believes that his or her life is meaningless, that all of our love and hopes and desires for justice are just brain chemicals randomly colliding in our heads. People may say that believe that, they believe that, but then they're abandoned by a loved one or they experience gross injustice or they're thrown into a concentration camp. And when that happens... All those theories go out the window. No one can live this way. The reason, of course, is that we're not just tiny specks of dust suspended on a sunbeam. That's a lie. Rather, God cares for us. God is mindful of us. The reality of Psalm 8 is that this world is not a vast assemblage of atoms colliding meaninglessly. Rather, this world is a great story. It's a great poem written by the author of everything. And with each one of us having a critical and valuable part to play. Can you see that that's so much more believable than the alternative? And it's so much more beautiful than the alternative as well. Nate Wilson, in his book, Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl, is making a similar point. He writes this. 
To exist in this poem is a greater gift than any finite creature can imagine. To be so insignificant and yet still be given a speaking part. To be given scenes that are my own and my own only. Scenes where the audience is limited to the author himself. Scenes that I often flub. To have been crafted with at least as much care as a snowflake. And to hear and feel and see and smell the heavy poetry of God. That is enough. The majesty of God is seen in the vastness of the world and in the fact that he loves you personally in the middle of all of it. The God who made the sun and the stars knows and cares about your schedules and habits. The God who has watched the entire history of the universe unfold cares about the details of your life, your hurts and your joys, your dreams and your fears. The God who oversees black holes and quantum theory is a God who loves you so much that he entered into our little part of the universe as a man, died on a cross for our sins, and makes us a part of his family by his grace. God's majesty is seen in an oppressive world. It's seen in a vast world. Lastly, David writes in Psalm 8 that the majesty of God is seen in the context of a purposeful world. These verses are basically exegeting Genesis 1 and 2. David is here saying that God made the world, then he made men and women in his image as creations crowning achievements. And God shows his love for mankind in that he made us, David says, with slightly less glory than the heavenly beings, than the angels. And he shows his love for us in that he has given us, verse 6, dominion over the created world. God's majesty is seen in the job that he gave us. Man was made to rule as God's vice regents in the world. Man was made to rule with goodness and with peace and with equity and with righteousness and with love. Man was made to care for creation. Verse 6 and 7 and 8 tell us man was made to be a shepherd, to be a rancher, to be an ornithologist and to be an oceanographer. Man was made to be the king of the earth and to serve God in this capacity, to explore and expand and enrich God's world. In a word, man was made with a purpose. With a purpose. And in that we see the majesty of God. But the sad reality is that is not the way this world is now, is it? If you read verses 6, 7, and 8, you think that does not reflect my reality and you would be correct. And the reason is because sin has entered the world. Sin has entered our world. And so instead of being crowned with glory and honor, as this psalm says, man experiences shame. Man experiences disgrace. Instead of exercising dominion with goodness and peace and love, man abuses the earth. Man abuses earth's creatures. Man even abuses himself. Instead of extending God's glory by living in harmony, man destroys man through war and through bloodshed. This world is not what it was supposed to be. In a way then, Psalm 8 is an echo of a world that once was, but is no more. Sin has made a mess of things. We still do bear God's image, but it's a tainted image. It's a scarred image. But the good news that Psalm 8 points us to is that in the coming of Jesus Christ, in the coming of Jesus Christ, we see the ultimate human, the second and last Adam, as the New Testament calls him, restore the vision 
of Psalm 8 that was lost in the fall. This world does not right now reflect the song of Psalm 8, but Jesus' coming ensures us that one day it will again. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews is getting at in Hebrews chapter 2. He quotes Psalm 8, 4 through 6 in Hebrews 2, and he writes, At present, right now, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In other words, the world does not look like Psalm 8, 4 through 8 right now. The world we live in does not reflect the vision that David sings about. Indeed, we don't even yet see everything in subjection to Jesus. There is still sin in the world. There is still evil in the world. The world is still in rebellion against God. It's still full of darkness. But redemption is seen in the work of Jesus. And it's only a matter of time until it's fully manifest. Continue reading in Hebrews, verses 9 and 10. Listen to what the author says. We don't see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Psalm 8 ultimately is pointing us to Jesus, the true and perfect human who came and suffered and died on the cross in order that we might be forgiven in order to restore guilty sinners like us, and in order to renew the good world that God has made. The coming of Jesus reveals the whole landscape on the horizon to which the entire Old Testament and Psalm 8 was pointing. So the context of the majesty of God arrives finally and fully in Jesus himself, the very image of God, the word of God. Jesus merges the majesty of God and the mercy of God into his very self. And he offers you both in the gospel. Can you see God's majesty in Jesus? In an oppressive world, can you see it? In a vast world, can you see it? In a purposeful world, can you see it? It's available, available for you. This psalm is saying the fullness of Jesus' majesty and mercy is available by faith. So the psalm calls you to receive it and to rejoice in what God is doing now and what he will do one day when Christ returns and makes the vision of Psalm 8 fully alive again. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray.